The word microbiome it has become a catch term only in the past decade, but it refers to something as old as humanity itself, the diverse and unimaginably vast population of microorganisms that share our bodies. These microbiota comprise an ecosystem whose constituent cells and genes actually outnumber our own, and without which we would be unable to carry out many functions necessary for life. Medicine has succeeded in mapping much of the gut microbiome, but only recently has advanced technology enabled researchers to identify and study the inhabitants of the human respiratory system and possibly use this information to diagnose and treat respiratory disease. I'm Jeff Lyon for JAMA Medical News. Recently, I discussed this research and its clinical applications with two experts on the front lines, Dr. Jack Gilbert, a microbial ecologist at the University of Chicago and director of its new microbiome center, one of many popping up around the country, by the way, and Dr. Steve White, professor of medicine at the University of Chicago, who studies asthma and chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, or COPD. So, Dr. White, let's start with you. For some time now, the focus has been on the gut microbiome, when and how did the realization hit everyone that the lung microbiome is a factor in respiratory disease? I think there was a realization some years back, well, forgive me, not a realization, but a thought, that the lung was a sterile organ. And there were no bacteria or hardly any bacteria in the lung in its normal state. And it's only when you had some perturbations of the lung with disease, like cystic fibrosis being the classic example bronchiectasis is another example, that you had a recognition that, well, yes, the lung could be infected, but you would treat those with antibiotics and they would get better generally. In more recent years, it's been recognized that the normal lung has its own microbiome. It's much, much smaller than the gut microbiome, of course, but it's a unique microbiome that may influence health and disease. And with that recognition, people started asking, well, other than the obvious things that are just mentioned, might there be other diseases where the microbiome would be perturbed? And so people started looking at asthma. This was aided because of a recognition that very few of the bacteria in the lung could actually be cultured by the traditional ways that, for example, microbiologists microbacteria in a laboratory. But with newer technology, the ability to sequence bacterial DNA became very feasible. And that's when we realized that the lung had many different organisms in it, some of which we thought would be normal and indeed were found in a normal lung, but some of which were decidedly not normal, and that's when we started looking at asthma. Perturbation of the lung microbiome. We hear the term dysbiosis in connection with that. Dr. Gilbert, can you explain what that means? A dysbiosis is um, a disassociation of the equilibrium of a system, right? It's it's actually a systems biology term that's uh, borrowed from physics and engineering. When we're really talking about a collapse of an ecosystem. So if you have a dysbiosis in the microbiome, you almost have a collapse of the 
integration of uh, activities between those organisms. So their metabolism uh, may not be functioning properly anymore. The community will turn from one that is predominantly health-promoting to one that is or could be associated with disease state or exacerbation of those conditions. So we would say that someone is dysbiotic if their microbiome is no longer uh, functioning in the way which would help to promote and maintain their health. And what are some of those factors that would uh, disrupt the ecosystem? They can range from things like uh, antibiotics, which would obviously cause a significant disruption in the ecosystem, to uh, immune disorders, which the immune system is the interface between the bacterial populations, the microbiome, and the human body. So when the immune system is disrupted, it can cause chaos in the microbiome. Uh, Diet can affect the microbiome. Um, Differential exposures um, early in life that could determine what kind of microbes colonize you can affect that and lead to dysbiosis, as well as medications and, and treatments that can have an impact upon the structure and the function of that microbial community. I would add to that, just with particular reference to the lung, we're bringing in hundreds of liters of air every hour into our lungs, that we have a number of environmental pollutants, some simple things like ozone or diesel exhaust particles. If you're standing on that busy city street and the bus goes by and you get a big whiff of the diesel exhaust, that's going to penetrate your lungs. These things may also change the microbial community deep down in the lungs. So environmental factors may cause a dysbiosis there that could be every bit as profound as what is going on in the GI tract or elsewhere. What are some of these microbes, and what would you say are the primary ones that really should concern us as far as pathogens? There are some types of strep streptococcus that are completely normal, that sit in our airways all the time, and they are what we call commensals. They're normal organisms. There are some other organisms that go by the name of like Neisseria or Acinetobacter. That can be completely normal. Likewise, there are some organisms that we think of as being pathogens just by virtue of being there. One of the things we found with our recent asthma study is that there is a bacterium called Pseudomonas, which is clearly a pathogen in many contexts, in many different organ systems, that is more prevalent in people who have severe asthma, but we see hardly at all in normal lungs. I just want to add to that just slightly. We have substantial evidence of interactions with fungal organisms and and lung health. For example, Eurotium, it's a, uh, a fungal organism, can be inversely linked to asthma. So, you know, when we talk about the microbiome, we're talking about many different things, not just bacteria, which can influence um, the outcomes in those patient populations. Viruses? Viruses, absolutely, especially in many airway diseases. We are starting to see evidence that bacterial phages So these are viruses that live inside bacteria, use them to replicate themselves, hiding out there for for many years until they can burst free. Some of these are exacerbated by antibiotic therapy. So if you give someone an antibiotic, it will stress the bacteria just enough to cause these viruses to explode out. And then suddenly you have a huge viral burden in the lung. 
And uh, we've only just started to see this in detail. But they're, you know, along with standard rhinoviruses and airway respiratory viral organisms themselves, there are many other mechanisms of interaction between the microbiome writ large and human health. What are some of the diseases of the respiratory system that might be most uh, amenable in the near future to being treated by this new understanding? You mentioned asthma. We could start with that. So we've thought for a long time that asthma is a disease of inflammation, but we've never really understood what it was that initiated this inflammation perhaps early in life or later in life, and we recognize that more asthma now occurs later in life. We also didn't really understand what would perpetuate this inflammation. We pointed fingers at things like environmental factors, viral infection, diet, and so on, but we didn't understand the interplay. I think more and more we're understanding, as Jack has alluded, that certain bacteria and fungi, certain viruses, have a role in initiating this inflammation. More importantly, these bacteria, fungi, and viruses can sustain the inflammation, can modulate that inflammation to allow asthma to enter a more chronic set-in state where it's more difficult to clear the inflammation and to restore the airways to some measure of health. One of the big issues in the asthma research and clinical community right now is we're a little bit stuck at what we can do to help people with asthma. We have inhaled corticosteroids. We have beta agonist drugs to dilate the airways. We have some very new anti-cytokine drugs that are just coming to market now that may help us with inflammation. But after that, we're a little stuck and we don't really know where to go next. I happen to think that one of the things we need to do is to learn which bacteria, which fungi are helping to perpetuate this asthma state and then find the keys in the host defense that we can turn this inflammation off. You can extend the same argument to some of the other lung diseases. We know that in COPD, for example, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, emphysema, and chronic bronchitis, that Bacteria likewise have a substantial role in perpetuating the inflammation there that leads to these frequent exacerbations of disease that land people in the hospital. So how do we leverage what we know about the microbiome at the moment? We have two ways of using the microbiome most effectively. Uh, The first and the easiest is to stratify our patients um, so that we can better understand or predict how they're going to respond to a particular type of therapy or what the progress of their disease state is going to be. The way we do that is we build databases which link the profile of the microbiome, the profile of their immune system, their immune phenotype, if you will, and their medical history and clinical records. And we use deep machine learning to map and identify those interactions and determine if they are predictive of healthcare outcomes. The secondary one is in interventions, as, as Steve pointed out. So, you know, utilizing the microbiome, identifying which ones are exacerbatory towards disease, which ones could help to suppress disease, and then exploring ways to manipulate them. Those are the key strategic areas that we find are most effective. 
So what is the direction that things are going in right now? Yeah, the strategy at the moment is to try and identify the playing field. As we talked about earlier, the types of bacteria, the types of fungi, the types of virus interactions which can lead to disease or progression of disease, and then to identify how they vary across populations. So in some of our recent work, we've looked at, say, the Hutterites versus the Amish. And you know, we can see particular microbiological associations uh, with the Hutterites and with their immune response to those microbiological associations that appear to be protective against the development of asthma versus the Hutterites, which are lacking those microbial signals and uh, leading to the exacerbation of asthma in their population. And again, that's a data analysis, a stratification of that analysis that allows us to direct our preclinical animal studies to identify the particular mechanisms which could be important. Jack alludes to this wonderful study that he and other colleagues here at the University of Chicago, uh, Carol Ober and Ann Sperling, have done to look at the Amish community and the Hutterite community. These are two relatively isolated religious communities, one in South Dakota and one in Indiana, where they are really back to nature in a way that I don't think any of the three of us would ever want to be. But the way they're back to nature, the way they farm are two very different ways. And it turns out that their microbiota and the structure of their microbiology that they live with every day is very different. As we accumulate more understanding of how the microbiome interacts with the human host, we're going to start getting at these mechanisms. But we can see the outcome. We can see that kids uh, exposed to certain uh, farmyard microorganisms do not develop allergies later on, or at least not to a point of severity. There's been some evidence that uh, antibiotic use early in life can cultivate asthma later on. Am I correct with that? Yeah, so the, the basic principle is that disruption of the microbiota during a critical window in the development of the immune system due to antibiotic therapy leads to a long-term chronic problem. And there are many specific disease states which are being linked to that critical window early in life. Everything from obesity and metabolic disorders to neurological disorders such as autism to these more chronic inflammatory conditions and disease burden types that are related to immune function. But a lot of the evidence to support that critical window has actually come from the animal studies whereby we're able to control and manipulate when an animal experiences an organism or when that experience is interrupted at exact time frames and determine the outcome. And then we map that back to our human population studies and we see that there are stages in a child's development when that exposure if interrupted can cause a problem. A lot of that work is in the gut bacteria and the gut microbiome. The gut microbiome is probably the largest biomass and that huge biomass has the largest immune interaction. And when we alter the microbiome in the gut, we affect immune stimulation and immune alteration cytokine profile structural alteration throughout the body. The gut microbiome isn't just affecting the gut. It has very distal effects, altering immune responses in other organs. Altering the microbiome in the gut can affect everything from the immune processes in the heart and the liver and the kidneys, and highly likely that the same is true for the lung. So it's a very connected system, and it has to be seen as a connected system in order to be able to work with it and treat it.
one of the things that Jack has emphasized here that I don't think is really appreciated by a lot of others is that this communication in the different microbiomes may well be a very much a two-way street. And Jack has mentioned that the gut microbiome may be influencing other organs. We've got some fair data in animals and a little bit even in humans suggesting that the gut microbiome may be influencing the inflammation in the airways, the breathing tubes with asthma and cystic fibrosis. One of the interesting questions is whether the airway microbiome then will be feeding back to the gut, sending signals back to the gut microbiome that will be changing it over time. So we have this potential for two-way communication whereby each of these microbiomes, which appear to be separate because one's in the gut and the other's in the lung, for example, may actually be communicating in ways that we don't quite understand right now. Do you foresee a time when uh, all of us will uh, undergo some kind of profiling, uh, microbiotic profiling? Absolutely. I mean, it's one of the key components of stratifying our patient population is to generate as much data as possible about them. In a slightly different angle, we have a surgical precision microbiome program where patients that come in for surgery are screened for their immune phenotype and for their microbiome, and we have information on their host genetics. And then we use that combined with their prior medical history and their medical therapeutic strategy to define the most precise strategy for their treatment, for their surgical treatment in the hospital at that time. This is an ongoing machine learning program which helps us to continually refine it as we get more and more data. And the plan is that, you know, in the future, we'll be able to predict the likely outcomes for a patient about to undergo a particular therapeutic, uh, a particular surgical procedure, uh, a particular treatment strategy. And we can use that information to fine tune it or even counsel the surgery. If we have a probability that a patient will have a critical collapse and they go into the ICU because they have a particular microbiome and a particular immune profile that means that they will respond very negatively to the surgical procedure, then uh, we may want to look at ways to alter that profile to augment their immune system or change their microbiome prior to the surgical procedure. It seems that there are some possibilities for perhaps manipulating the microbiome in such a way that uh, you might not have to utilize antibiotics anymore, which get around the antibiotic resistance problem, would it not? Well, absolutely. In fact, um, the more we can manipulate the system of a person, their ecosystem, if you will, you know, a human being is just another complex series of ecosystems. The more we can manipulate it by altering their diet or using particular targeted medical therapies or using a strategy to either particularly remove an organism or shift their ecosystem from one that is disease-causing to one that is health-promoting, then, yeah, we could theoretically do away with many of the antibiotic therapies we currently rely on. The problem is less to do with our necessity for using antibiotics. I think there will always be a need for them in critical conditions or situations where it's absolutely necessary, but to do away with the prophylactic use of antibiotics. If we can alter our antibiotic strategies to prevent the need for that prophylactic use, we're just giving them because just in case. If we can be more precise in our prediction of how a patient will respond to a particular therapy, then we can significantly reduce the likelihood that we'll have overburdening of antibiotics in our population. 
if we look at the overuse of antibiotics and can we find ways of changing the relationship between the microbes and the host so that maybe we don't need antibiotics in the first place, particularly in these more predictable prophylactic situations of the person coming in to have surgery next week to get their hip replaced. But we have the overuse issue, and this is one that I think your listeners in the clinical community will greatly appreciate. People come in to see a general practice physician, primary care physician, pediatrician, internist, and, well, they've got a cold, they've got the sniffles, and many times they walk away with a prescription for antibiotics. Now they're oral, and now they go to the gut, and they're changing the microbiology community, not just in that person, but in all the people around them. And so as we go through time, we see the breeding of more resistant microbes. We see the change in the community structure in households, and then that leads to a larger community change in microbes. And so the antibiotics that I, as a physician, give to this person today with the sniffles may come back and haunt me at some point in the future because I've now changed the microbiome in the larger community around us. And that sounds perhaps a little Orwellian when you first think about it, but from the standpoint of systems biology, it's completely predictable. Right. And speaking of that, how much demographic diversity is there in the microbiome uh, communities? I mean, would uh, somebody from India, for example, have a notably different system inside their lungs or their gut? And how would this play with, say, um, global medicine, which is obviously going to assume larger and larger importance over time? I can't speak much for India. I, I don't know the microbiome data in India. But you mentioned one thing that I will touch on. I, if you look in a, a local community, are there racial or ethnic differences there? We actually took a look at this in our own asthma community in the studies that we've done because Chicago being a very diverse city, very diverse population, we had many volunteers, and I put in a plug for the volunteers and thank them very much for what they've done, where we were able to put scopes down into their lungs and sample the microbiome of their lower airways, their lower breathing tubes. And if we looked at the people of African ancestry versus the people of European ancestry, the blacks versus whites, there was very little racial difference in their microbiomes. We couldn't sort them on the basis of race. Likewise, we couldn't sort them on the basis of gender. Something that Jack may want to touch on is that it's not so much the race or gender that really matters. It's the household you're in and the things you're in around the household and the type of heat you have and whether or not you have pets in the home and so forth. That may be a much larger influence. There's an interesting analogy here. Well, it's a, it's a story, really. It comes from ancient China. And the fact that when officials were sent out from Beijing or Nanjing to go and live on the periphery of the empire and lord over the people there, they would often take a small box, an ornate box full of soil with them. And when they got out there, if they ever got homesickness or depression or if they ever got gastrointestinal diseases or, or sickness in general, they would take a scoop of the soil, put it in some tea, mix it up and drink it. The idea was that they would be taking a little bit of that home environment and using it to cure their disease. But we're actually starting to find evidence that having a, a, a microbial stimulus from your home environment, the environment you grew up in as a child, might actually be beneficial. 
And so there is a potential role for understanding the history of people. I mean, we mentioned India before. I mean, they, they have, a, as we know, a huge smog problem there. So that, that would have to have some effect on, on their microbiome. Yeah, we do look at the smog and the particulate material in cities around the world, and sometimes it's the biological agents that are stuck to those smog particles. You know, your PM2.5s, particulate materials at 2.5 microns or smaller, are going to get right inside the lung into the alveola. PM10s are going to stick in the upper airway, but both of them have a particular types of bacteria and sometimes fungi stuck to them. And both of them can elicit specific immune responses, as well as potentially having chemical toxicities. So uh, we're exploring that specifically. And, you know, when you go into a, a hog farm, for example, there are many particulates in the air that are being uh, inhaled or experienced by the workers and the farmers and people in the local community around the farm. Well, gentlemen, that's about all we have time for today. Dr. Jack Gilbert and Dr. Steve White from the University of Chicago and its new Microbiome Center. Thank you so much for taking this time to talk with us about a very important subject. I'm Jeff Lyon with JAMA Medical News and Perspectives. For more podcasts, please visit us at jamanetworkaudio.com.